Picture it. It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black. And you're in the Pacific Northwest. In a forest. An old growth forest to be more specific. And it's a wet winter night. The ground is soft and muddy. You barely make a sound as you walk across the damp, wet leaves. The forest is still, and everything is oh so quiet. Then suddenly, a chainsaw buzzes to life. From a distance, the only lights you can see are coming from two headlamps. Two men work quickly as they work around the chunk of a gigantic redwood tree. The tree is roughly 30 feet in diameter. The men with their chainsaws make careful vertical cuts along the trunk of the gigantic ancient redwood tree. Eventually, they amass a small pile of heavy rectangular blocks of wood. And after a few hours, they begin to load the large chunks of wood into the bed of their pickup truck. Just an hour before dawn breaks, they get into their pickup truck and drive down the muddy dirt road that they came in on. They leave only empty beer cans, mountains of sawdust, and an ancient redwood tree that has been permanently scarred and maybe even killed. This is what tree poaching looks like, and it happens a lot more than you would expect. Well, everybody around here knows how to chop down a tree. So tree poaching, for those who aren't familiar, is the illegal act of cutting down trees that are not yours, whether they be on private land or government land, and taking them away and often selling them on the black market. And while on its surface, tree poaching seems to be a crime driven by economic motivation, when you look a little bit deeper, you'll see that tree poaching is a reflection of both economic hardship and societal change. And that is why tree poaching has become rampant in the Pacific Northwest. And across the entire United States, tree poaching has begun to have a massive impact the U.S. Forest Service estimates that one in 10 trees cut down in the United States is the result of tree poaching. In North America, it's estimated that more than a billion dollars annually is poached from the forest. And the U.S. Forest Service estimates that roughly $100 million worth of timber is taken from public lands in the United States. And while I'm talking to you about the tree poaching impact in terms of dollars and cents, the ecological impact of tree poaching might be even greater. The old growth trees that are often poached in the Pacific Northwest are keystone species that play important roles in their ecosystem, as well as massive carbon sinks for our fight against climate change. But surprisingly, the most shocking thing to me about tree poaching is just how unnoticed the crime often goes. Like when you stop to think about it, right? What does it take to actually steal a tree? Like, what does somebody have to do to be able to take a massive ancient tree, steal it, and then, like, fence it or sell it on the black market? We're not talking about criminals here who are just rolling into Home Depot and trying to return a load of lumber like it was some stolen Tide Pods from the grocery store. Really, bro? You gotta resort to this? Economy's not that bad. What does it take to steal a tree?
like to go into a forest, find a tree and just straight up take it away. Trees are absolutely enormous and particularly the ones that fetch the highest values, their size is almost unthinkable. A mature redwood tree can grow up to 240 feet high. That's taller than a 20-story apartment building. It dwarfs a 20-story apartment building. And here in North America, tree poaching continues to be on the rise. During the economic downturn of 2008, Redwoods National Park reported a significant spike in tree poaching activity. And particularly when we saw lumber prices skyrocket in 2020 as a result of the pandemic, those timber poaching cases spiked even further. But why would somebody do this? Why would somebody take a massive living organism like a redwood tree that could be over 2,000 years old and hack it apart just for some extra cash? It truly seems like an unfathomable crime, but when you dig deeper, you start to realize that there's more at play than what you see on the surface. And in today's farm crimes video, I want to actually talk to you guys about why people steal these trees and what do they ultimately do with these trees and get into all of the specifics around timber poaching. You know, as far as agricultural crimes go, timber poaching is pretty gosh darn egregious. For us here in North America, those large old growth trees are like the equivalent of cathedrals in Europe. They are our closest existing link to the past. And while that connection to history might seem important, arguably even more important ecologically is the role of the old growth trees and what they do for our ecosystems, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Redwood forests hold more carbon per acre than any other place on planet Earth. That means if we have any hope of trying to fight climate change and sequester carbon, we are going to need those old growth trees holding in that carbon. And beyond the carbon sequestration impact, old growth trees play an important role supporting an entire ecosystem with animal and plant life depending on those large old growth trees to serve as the backbone of the place that they live. When one of those trees gets cut down, it's not coming back in my lifetime, your lifetime, or your great-great-great-granddaughter's lifetime. It will be essentially irreplaceable. And so when you think about that timber poaching, that is why it's such an unforgivable crime. The theft and desecration of the American Redwood in particular is like the North American equivalent of the rhino horns of Africa. And again, why would somebody do this? There must be less horrific ways to make a quick buck. But honestly, if you look back on human history, timber poaching has always reared its ugly head when the haves take too much from the have-nots. So the culprit was capitalism all along. For example, if you go back into old medieval England and look back, uh, say, in the time of Robin Hood, what you're going to find is that when the kings and lords took possession of the forests and they didn't leave the common folk with enough space or resources to live, those common folk rebelled and they ended up stealing the trees. In fact, some historians will tell you 
that Robin Hood wasn't so much a bandit as he was a timber poacher. And when you look at what's happening in the Pacific Northwest and the timber poaching that's going on, it's hard not to see some of those parallels happening today. In this heroic landscape was created a new kind of American hero, the lumberjack. Giants among men who cut the forest down to size. As European settlers came to North America, always on the edge of the frontier, there were timber towns. Little villages and towns that sprung up with the main industry being logging and milling the wood and trees that were around them. It started up in New England and down in Virginia and pushed westward from there, cutting through the Midwest, out past the Rockies, until finally settling up in the Pacific Northwest, where that region became the last frontier of the lumberjack. And those lumberjack communities had such a rich heritage and tradition, being a lumberjack wasn't just a job. It became a cultural identity. With my double blade axe and my hobnailed boots, I go where the timbers fall. Even to this day, if you walk into a hipster bar somewhere in Brooklyn, you're going to see dudes with burly beards and buffalo check flannel shirts all dressed like lumberjacks. I bought this axe for an Instagram shoot. Hashtag beard game strong. Even if they do work during the day as a data analyst at an advertising agency. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He's and, and that right there is the direct result of the lumberjack culture of the 19th to 20th century here in the United States. Machinery and mass production have made most industries tame, but the only mass production in felling a tree is the mass of muscle behind the two-bladed axe. Logging and timber were the primary economic drivers in the Pacific Northwest all the way up into the 1990s. And then everything changed. And why did everything change, you might ask? Well, say hello to my little friend. These were the Timber Wars. Yes, the Northern Spotted Owl. This little critter right here sparked an entire conflict known as the Timber Wars in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Is timber not put here for man's use? You are a hypocrite, buddy. And now if you're somebody under the age of 40, you might be hearing that term Timber Wars and not even quite understanding what it is or what it means. So allow me to give you just a little bit of historical context. When your region is dependent on a single industry and their environmental concerns going all around, and the environmentalists protest and they make it all your economics depressed because stupid trying to save the stupid spotted owl. It's alright because I'm saved by the owl. Yeah, it's environmentalists and there were lumber groups and they were going at each other real bad. And it took some time before it all got settled by Bill Clinton having some sort of weird timber thing without door. Alright, because we're saved by the spotted owl. You see, starting back in like the late 70s and piling all the way through into the mid and late 90s, there was a battle going on in the Pacific Northwest between environmentalists and conservationists and the timber industry. 
You had these large timber conglomerates partnering up with the rural working class timber communities where they were based, going head to head with the ecologists and environmentalists and the protesters and all those hippie dippies out there. Yes, this was a true example of rural versus urban conflict, something that we see echoes and shadows of to this very day here in the United States. When you wonder why don't country folk like city folk, conflicts like the timber wars are perfect examples of why. Go back to happen, where you belong. As environmentalism rose to its modern form in the 70s and 80s, more and more folks started to speak out and object to the cutting of old-growth trees. You know, traditionally, the U.S. Forest Service had looked at old-growth trees as essentially dead wood. They felt like really the value from trees was coming from new trees growing, and so they were allowing these old-growth trees to be cut readily through auction. The way it would work is a timber company would bid and get the rights to log a certain part of the national forest. They'd go in there and they'd clear cut the gosh darn thing and take all of the old growth timber, send that timber off to the mill, and then that would turn into the houses and homes and anything else that needed to be built all across America and all across the entire world. And just like any other crop, you're thinking about your life cycle of your crop and recycling and going from one to the next to the next to the next. And those old growth trees, which were slow growing and not rapidly growing like a younger tree, were seen as dead wood that should be cleared out as much as possible. But then in the 70s and 80s, there started to be a greater appreciation for the role that old growth forests could play. Scientists began to observe the important role that old growth trees played in their ecosystem, and nature lovers began to appreciate and admire their beauty in a much greater way. And so a shift started to happen, and it began happening with court cases and lawsuits in the 80s, until environmentalists played the spotted owl card. Two million acres in the Pacific Northwest for the spotted owl. When's the last time you walked into a pet shop and said, damn, you're out of owl. It's a damn bird. <laughs> and specifically, what they did was they studied the northern spotted owl. And they eventually got it listed as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. And because of that listing, that put the logging of old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest to a screeching halt. You see, the spotted owl really could only make these old growth forests its habitat, and as dictated by the Endangered Species Act, their habitat now needed to be protected. And so this one little owl sent an entire industry into a standstill. They took our jobs! And across the entire region of the Pacific Northwest, it sparked a war. In 1990, the logging industry estimated that roughly 30,000 jobs were lost because of the change in protection status of the spotted owl. And the harvesting of timber in the Pacific Northwest dropped by roughly 80% after that shift. Now you guys can be hearing those stats and say, wow, that seems massive. How can one tiny little bird create so much change? But there are a lot of experts who might call BS on the talking points of the logging industry there because they will be the ones to tell you that number one, we were already running out of old growth forest to log. And so there was beginning to be a decline long before the arrival of the spotted owl's protection status. And then number two, the logging industry as a whole had been undergoing two major shifts. Number one, 
the further escalation of automation meant that you needed fewer and fewer workers on any given logging crew. And so to work an area of land, you might go from needing 50 guys and you might be down to 10 guys and a bunch of big machines. That shift alone would cause a lot of those jobs to drop. And then the other shift was a lot of milling was stopping happening on site and things were happening where logs would be sent overseas or logs would be sent to cheaper regions like the southeast of the United States where the work could be done at a much lower price. They did their job! They did their job! So while, yes, the protection status of the northern spotted owl did make a big difference in terms of the ability to log old growth forest, you could argue that it didn't put the halt to the logging industry quite the way it's often portrayed. But regardless of how you position that impact, there was this negative downstream consequence to many small rural communities in the Pacific Northwest that had been historically focused and rooted in the timber industry, and that was their primary economic engine. They took our jobs! Timber industry shrunk rapidly in the 1990s in the Pacific Northwest. Those communities saw some significant problems. They saw a massive rise in underemployment and unemployment, and they saw an increase in crime and drug use amongst its residents. And anytime throughout America, whenever you think about what happens to a community when it loses its identity, you basically saw the same thing happen in these small logging towns of the Pacific Northwest. You know, our farm is actually based here in Northern New England in a region that has historically been known for dairy farming. But over the last 30 or 40 years, it's been very difficult to be a successful dairy farmer. And so all across our state, what you're seeing is dairy farm operations that have been around for generations shuttering their doors because they're no longer financially viable. And there are a lot of folks who are struggling to know What's their identity? What's their purpose? Where do they find meaning in their vocation and work? I can only imagine the same thing happened to folks who grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the 80s and 90s. Hey, wait, I, I mean, here you saw your parents, say in the 70s, be able to go out there without a college education and get a good job right out of high school working in the logging industry. They would be able to buy a home and have a relatively new pickup truck sitting in the driveway and they could earn that honest and reasonable living from being able to just legally cut down those trees. But then when you look at what your situation is, where you're worse off than your parents were, and you look at how your generation doesn't have those same economic opportunities, that can foster a heck of a lot of resentment. And when you have underemployed people who need money, have a lot of resentment and chainsaws and live amongst really big trees, that's when you're gonna start to get these situations where you have this timber poaching. And that is at the root of most of the cases that you see of timber poaching in the Pacific Northwest. Like, let me give you a couple of examples here. In 2011 and 2012 at Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Washington State, a group of folks led by Harold Klaus Coopers, who owned a company called J&L Tonewoods, would go out and steal trees solely to get the wood that can be used to make specialty guitars. 
They would go into the forest, they would cut down these big leaf maple trees, particularly the ones that had the figured wood, which is that really special patterning that you see on lots of those fancy guitars. And they would go in, cut down 100-year-old trees, and then make forged documents that they would then take to the sawmill. And with those forged documents, they would be able to get the wood milled and then sold to music instrument manufacturers. And so oftentimes what you see with timber poaching cases is people will be able to take something that's illegal and meant for the black market and go through a gray marketing process where they're ultimately able to sell it in any old store. You know, for example, there were a couple court cases a few years back even where folks like lumber liquidators got into trouble because they were selling stolen timber because they were working off of some forged documents. That is very common in the timber industry, but it's not just limited to the timber industry because that's something that happens whether you're thinking about flooring or construction or instruments or even the dashboard of a fancy car that has like that nice wood veneer. A lot of that stuff is stolen timber. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. And so that guy Coopers, who was in trouble in this 2011-2012 case, he ultimately ended up generating roughly $800,000 from all this stolen timber. And in 2015, he ended up getting sentenced to six months in jail and had to pay fines north of $150,000. He also had a couple of other accomplices who were convicted and had to pay fines and do jail time as well. But the struggle really is, like, how do you even account for the true impact of those trees they cut down? Yes, there's the economic side of it, but the ripples created by cutting down trees like that extend far beyond just simple economic consequences. You know, so often timber poaching is classified as a property crime, but it really is a crime against property, it's a crime against ecology, and it's even a crime against history, which is, again, why I see it as so egregious. A Northern California man was ordered to pay more than $11,000 in restitution for stealing part of a tree. And another example of what I mean is these two guys who were convicted of stealing a redwood burl. And for those of you guys who don't know, uh, burls are these like bumps that grow at the base of a redwood tree. It's how the tree often will regenerate. So for example, if there's a forest fire, these redwood trees have this ability to regenerate and oftentimes it's coming right from the burl. That burl wood is often the most valuable and prized wood out there. And so oftentimes when timber poachers are going in and cutting down redwood trees or cutting into redwood trees, they're usually poaching it for the burl wood. And how much of a redwood can survive without its burl is still up to question because we know so little about these trees because they're so hard to study because they grow so long and they grow so old. You know, who's to say that a tree that was poached in 2013 and had its burl cut out, but then dies, say, in, I don't know, 2050 or 2060, didn't die prematurely because of that timber poaching. And so, yes, in 2013, this guy, Danny Garcia, along with a guy by the name of Larry Morrow, they got in trouble because they used chainsaws, much like I described at the very beginning of this video, and came in and hacked all these chunks out of there. And the park rangers who investigated the case were able to kind of put some things together with photographs of the stolen burls and connect them to the criminals. And so that's how in 2014, Garcia and Mora were convicted. Garcia only was sentenced to 700 hours of community service and a fine, and he got banned from the, the park for like three years, and Morrow got kind of a similar sentence. So in the reality, when you think about the impact of their crime relative to the punishment, it pales in comparison. But Danny Garcia is a perfect example of a guy 
who came from a timber family who had a background in a community that historically had been known for logging, but he himself had struggled with drugs and unemployment and the spotty employment options. And so he's an example of a person who's out there timber poaching. And in all of the interviews and conversations I've read with timber poachers and researching for this video, one of the things I was always struck by is just how much anger exists on the part of the timber poacher towards environmentalists, conservationists, and people who they feel like who've come in and usurped their community and taken their culture. No compromise. No So much of the dialogue around the timber wars in the 90s from the perspective of folks who lived in those communities was that these large, well-funded international environmentalist groups like the Sierra Club and Greenpeace were coming in and destroying their communities. And that bred a whole heck of a lot of resentment. And in my opinion, it's that resentment that fuels so much of what happens today. Now, I know you might be sitting at home watching this video and shaking your fist at these timber thieves and saying, oh, these awful people are crooks and they deserve all the punishment that they get. But you know what? You're playing a role in that as well because you probably have your feet up right now in your living room on your fancy coffee table. And that fancy coffee table just might be made out of black market timber that was sold to a mill under forged documents and then processed and then made at the furniture shop that you bought your table from. Or maybe you happen to have a guitar down in the basement that's made from some of that fancy maple wood that some folks got convicted over stealing. And heck, you know that guy that you met on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist who sold you the firewood that you have stocked down in your lumber shed for next winter well that lumber was poached as well and you just didn't even know it because you're just buying some firewood off the back of a truck from a guy on craigslist and all of this brings me to another sad fact about timber poaching that the folks who are doing the poaching and reselling are coming from hard situations as i indicated earlier but oftentimes actually drugs play a significant role in it as well like many timber poachers are out there poaching trees in the name of securing money to buy drugs. And in fact, I've heard anecdotally, for example, that there are some drug dealers out in the Pacific Northwest who are willing to take timber in place of actual U.S. currency for said drugs. And I know you're probably saying, well, how do we stop this? How do we stop our old growth forests from being destroyed by drug-addled timber poachers who are mad that they're underemployed? And the reality is the solution isn't all that simple. You can try to do more policing. You can try to increase your security presence, but there's so much woods and so much ground to cover. And it's so hard to cover that 24 hours a day. And you're often fighting with, you know, law enforcement folks going up against local folks. That's usually going to be a losing battle. And if you were really going to take a look at that deep rooted cause of what's driving the timber poaching, it comes back to societal problems of underemployment and people not experiencing just transitions. Like when you have an industry that crumbles, what do we do for the people who are impacted by that crumbling industry? How do we help them carry forward? How do we help them find an identity? How do we help them find livelihoods that can provide for their families? I think that needs to be something we consider when we think about the problem of timber poaching, 
but it extends out to other things that we're seeing right now. Like, like when I personally look out and see that artificial intelligence unemployment tsunami that we're going to be facing in a few years, it has me personally looking at situations like timber poaching and wondering if there's any lessons to be learned from this. When major change happens, you need to think about the impact to the ecosystem. Whether that means somebody is cutting down a thousand-year-old redwood tree in a forest in the Pacific Northwest, or shifts in the human ecosystem in terms of where people are finding their employment, we need to be thinking about these things holistically and how all the dots connect, or we're going to be continuously faced with new types of problems like timber poaching. And with that, I hope you guys have enjoyed this latest episode of the Goldshaw Farm podcast. You know, sometimes I'm going to be doing these special episodes that are farm crime episodes. There is a video companion version of this episode on our Goldshaw Farm YouTube channel. So if you want to hear me say all the exact same things over again, but see it with lots of interesting, pretty pictures and archival footage and see the very chaotic mess that I made of trying to recreate the Saved by the Bell theme song and intro credits, you should go check it out. Goldshaw Farm uh, YouTube channel. And then also be sure to give us a review. If you enjoyed this, you know, rate us on wherever you're listening to your podcasts, write us reviews, write us questions. If there are maybe future farm crime episodes or topics you want us to tackle, let us know too. And we will be back very soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We walk the fields. Under the stars, the love is here in Gold Shop Farm.